Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good week? Okay, got some, got an absolutely, that was cool, all right. Well, it's good to see all of you. Uh, I'm Chris, I'm one of the pastors here. I think I know pretty much all of you. Uh, if I don't, you know, come, like to shake your hand, get to know you uh, after the service. Um, I'm excited because I get to open the Word of God today, and uh, that's just always an exciting thing when you get to do that. So, um, before we get into it, let's open up uh, in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the joy and the privilege uh, to be able to uh, read your word, to learn about who you are and who we are, and the implications that might have in our relationships, in our marriages. God, we thank you for the grace that you show us, uh, the love that you pour out on us. God, we ask that you would give us uh, open hearts to be able to hear your word and understand it, to receive it. Oh God, will you help us do that today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, there was a, a man in, in the state of Georgia, and... Um, he went before a judge be, because he had stolen uh, uh, a can of peaches. And uh, the judge, you know, there was, there was some back and forth. There was some questioning going on. And eventually the man admitted, you know, yes, I stole the can of peaches. He was an uh, older gentleman. And uh, the judge said, okay, well, I want you to be, uh, I want you to be honest and, and, um, and open about this because it's going to have an impact on, on your sentencing. How many peaches were in the can? And the man said, there was five peaches in the can. And the judge said, okay, I'm going to sentence you to jail for the same number of days as there were peaches in that can. And uh, at about that time, there was a, a, a voice that rang out from the back of the room, and it was the gentleman's wife, and, and she said, he also stole a can of peas. <laughs> All right, it's not true. It's not a true story. It's a funny story. Um, it's a funny joke. It, you know, there's a lot of jokes that, uh, about uh, husbands and wives and marriages. Um, there's a lot of um, comedy that revolves around that. Even, even uh, if, if, if you think about last week, if you were here, you know, there was the video of the very first argument that occurred between Adam and Eve, right? Uh, and I actually, I actually had to go back and watch it again this past week because I just thought, I thought it was hilarious and I was, I was just dying. So... Um, so I went back and watched that, and, and I showed it to my wife, you know, which is always good, you know. Um, but uh, marriage has within it uh, difficulties uh, because of the fallen world that we live in, and and sometimes those difficulties are the uh, creation for jokes. Um, there's, there's comedies that, that are based on uh, marriages and, and, and some, uh, some challenges within them. In fact, if you look at uh, just the scope of media that, that we uh, consume between books and movies and TV shows, there's just a huge chunk that is built on the marriage relationship. And some of it is funny. And some of it is heartbreaking um, when you're watching certain dramas about it. Uh, 
And then, of course, you have the, the idealized, romanticized, you know, rose-colored lenses of the, the Hallmark Channel or, or something like that where it's just like, oh, everything is so perfect, you know? Um, the, the girl that owns the coffee shop always falls for the, for the guy that has the bookstore or something like that, you know? I don't, I don't know, but, but, you know, like, you, you see this idea of, of marriage in just about, you know, all over the place. Um, as, if you look at like self-help bookshelves, there's just volumes and volumes of, of things written on how to have a good marriage. Uh, if you don't believe me, next time you're at a store, just take a look at the magazines that are there. 15 tips on how to have your best marriage and uh, 10 ways to uh, have better intimacy with your spouse and all of that stuff. There's a hunger for healthy marriages, for flourishing relationships within us. And in a fallen world, um, that can be difficult. It can be hard. Uh, we see in culture that there's even a, a, a move away from marriage now. The world is, is trying to say that, you know, marriage might be okay for some people, but for some people, maybe it's not okay, and that's okay. You have this rise of cohabitation that, that people are saying are actually good. And if you don't know what that means, it just means, you know, people living together in an intimate relationship without being married. Um, and there's people saying that that's a good thing. But when we read the word of God and when you look at what's good for human flourishing, we actually see that it's not a good thing. And in fact, right now, there's a state legislature that is proposing this idea that uh, polyamorous relationships be recognized by the state in the same way that marriages are recognized. And if you don't know what that means, a polyamorous relationship, like it's, I have to explain it because it's a part of our culture now. It just means a group of people now. A group of people that are intimate with each other and recognize that it is a, uh, a, a closed relationship within the group, but not married and there's a state that is proposing legislation to say we want to recognize people in those relationships and give, you know, give them uh, tax benefits and things like that, just like we do married people. It's a part of our culture. It's a part of the world we live in. And, and the thing is, is we all want flourishing relationships. We all want flourishing marriages, marriages that are rich and healthy and deep and and full of life with one another. And people that don't even know Christ want that. Which is why we see so much uh, of the world saying that this is good, this is good, this is good. And last week, uh, Joe gave us kind of a, he introduced this idea of marriage, um, biblical marriage. And what we were going to talk about coming up in this series, and one of the things that he asked is, uh, where is your source of authority for what marriage even is? You have to consider that. Is it the world or is it the Bible? And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But he also walked through uh, what a marriage is, and that it's an institution created by God. He walked through some things that are 
are, are helpful in a marriage and some things that uh, create difficulty in a marriage. And he walked about, talked about uh, what, can, what may, might end a marriage. So um, we're going to be talking about how to have a flourishing relationship between a husband and a wife. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So if you have your Bibles, please open uh, to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be, Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be beginning in uh, verse 22. Um, and as you turn there, I just want to say uh, a few things. First, um, we're going to see three things uh, today. The first thing that we're going to see is uh, we're, we're going to talk about the, the context of the first century culture, so you understand the context that this is written in. And we're also going to talk about a little bit about the world's perceptions uh, for marriage, and we're going to contrast that uh, with what the Word of God tells us. Um, we're also, uh, second, we're going to see um, the, the truths of the Word of God and what is always true, uh, even in the first century as it is today. And then third, we're going to talk about how that might directly apply to us. And I just want to take a moment and say, you know, if you are someone that's not married today, maybe you're single, maybe, maybe you intend to be married, um, maybe, uh, you know, your husband or wife has passed away, um, maybe you're divorced. Don't, don't tune out today. Stay here and listen. Because the principles that we are going to talk about here are really principles for just healthy and flourishing relationships as well. And, and, and the body of Christ needs all of us. In fact, if you're somebody that's, that's here today listening to this and you're like, man, whew, glad I can take take a load off over these next few weeks because I got this whole marriage idea licked. You know, like we just have the best marriage and there's no problems and we've got it all figured out. That's awesome. Please keep listening and uh, be a part of the body of Christ and, and encourage people and share with people um, some of the things that you've got figured out. And maybe, you know, maybe we can help each other. So um, I, ju I just wanted to, uh, just wanted to say that so that we all know that this is going to be uh, valuable for all of us. Every time we read the Word, it's not like some things are good and some things aren't that good for us, right? It, it's the whole counsel of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. So um, I wanted to start with that. Okay, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we'll begin in uh, verse uh, 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, or submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For he... Or for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Huh. Okay. Well, that's where we're going to start. So that's a tough one. Wives, be subject to your husbands or submit to your husbands. Um. The first thing that we need to understand is that this actually is an extension of the spirit-filled living that Paul is talking about just preceding this. It's not like he just comes up out of nowhere and says, wives, submit to your husbands. No, it is a picture of what spirit-filled living looks like within the marital context. So if we are all living faithfully in Christ, then this is something that should be happening. So that's a big part of it. 
The other thing I want to talk about here is that when we hear that word, submit or be subject, we tend to think of it in a negative way, just as people. And, and I want you to know that I don't think it's a negative thing at all. Not according to the scriptures. It's actually a really amazing and beautiful thing. It's not this grudging or begrudging idea of, of um, unwillingly submitting. Oh, it's, it's, it's a willful submission. As a matter of fact, the interesting thing here, that, that word for uh, submit or, or be subject to, it actually doesn't even exist here in this verse. Um, it's, it's implied and it's taken from the preceding verse, verse 21. It says, um, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ and submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And that verse is for all believers. All believers are to be uh, subject to one another, submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. And that word fear there, it's actually the same word down in verse 33 when it says that a wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Same word group there. There's this idea of reverential uh, respect that, that, is, that is kind of sandwiching this, this section, and, and, it's, um, and it's every believer's understanding of reverence to Christ being a part of how we submit to one another. So if I was to read it uh, rather woodenly, if if you will, it would be, uh, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. You see how like that, that would go, that, that, that verb is being pulled in there? And there's a few things that we need to understand about this. Uh, for one, that idea of being subject, it's actually in the middle voice, in the middle voice in Greek. Um, and in the middle voice, it's this idea that it should be done with free agency. In other words, voluntarily. It's not something that's like a forced submission. It is a willful submission. That's the idea here. And in verse 33, when it says that uh, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, uh, that's also in the middle voice, but it's it's hard to explain the, the syntax of the Greek wording there. Actually, um, it, it's still a command, but it's, it's uh, the way that it's worded and the way that it's constructed leads it to be kind of a softer command. It, it's, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's a subjunctive and, and, and uh, in, con, in conjunction with, with the... Uh, uh, with the conjunction that's used there, that usually leads it to being a softer command in, in that construction in New Testament and extra-biblical literature. So uh, what you see here is that there is a command for submission, but it's, it's not an uh, overbearing, hard command. It is, it, it, it's softer, and it's calling for voluntary submission in the same way that all believers are to be submissive to one another. In fact, it's really important that when we look at this kind of stuff, we need to uh, look at it through the entirety of uh, biblical theology, of, of what, is, 
What is Paul talking about? What is he doing with these words? How are these words used elsewhere? And we have this principle of scripture interprets scripture. In other words, when we read the word submit, we don't put on it our thoughts of submission that are built by the world. We take out of it what the Bible actually says about submission. So we have to look at that. And that word, that word is actually used of Christ. Of the Son submitting to the Father. It's used in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, if you want to write it down and, and look that up later. So there's something very valuable that we can understand about this, that, that the, the submission of a wife to her husband and the church to Christ uh, and the Son to the Father, the, there's this idea that, okay, there's a willful submission there, a joyful submission, um, but why? Why? Well, in the first century context, there was this idea, and this is not biblical, this is outside the Bible. There was this idea that women were, uh, had an intellectual defect. They were defective intellectually. That they were uh, less than husbands. They were less than men. Um, they were not equal so it's natural that someone who has an intellectual defect and is, and is not equal would submit to someone who is superior. That's outside the Bible. That's, that's the first century context, okay? But yet we see Christ submits to the Father, and it's the same word group there. Well, are we to say that God the Son is intellectually defect? That he has a defective intellect? I don't, I don't think that's what we would say, right? Uh, so we have this idea, and, and what gets developed out of this word group, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but what gets developed out of it is this idea of uh, subordination in economy. Subordination in economy. Or you could say it like functional subordination. Functional subordination. Positional subordination. Versus an ontological subordination. So what do I mean by ontological? That's like a, a state of being. In other words, what it's saying is that Christ does not submit to the Father because his being is less. We would never say that, right? Uh, Jesus is fully God, just as God the Father is fully God. Do you understand that? So there is an equality there between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and yet God the Son submits to the Father positionally. He submits to the Father because of his role. That's the same idea in a husband and wife relationship. The wife is not less than the husband. Women are not less than men. But there is a call for submission due to God's order. Do you see how that kind of works out and how that plays out? That's an important aspect because a lot of times when we want to... Uh, have this idea that submission is a negative thing, we're really pulling ideas from the world and, and from influences that are not healthy and not correct. Submission isn't this, it's not built on a negative ground to try to uh, oppress people or, or, or anything like that. It is, a, it is a functional thing that we actually see as a very healthy and fruitful thing in Scripture. We see it in the Godhead and we see it in the divine model of Christ and the church a willful submission to the authority of God. That's the idea here. Um, 
it's very important that we kind of understand that. And the reason for it is built on verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. So now we're going to shift for a little bit, and we're going to start talking about husbands. And boy, the bulk of responsibility in a marital relationship, according to the word of God, is put upon the husbands. I, just, I, I want you to hear that, and I want you to feel that. The commands to the husband in a marital relationship, they're not softened like I talked about with the wife. No, they are active commands. And there's a, this idea that biblical, um, a, a biblical concept of marriage, a husband has responsibility there. So we need to understand that when we begin to read about the husbands. Okay. It says that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And then in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that, uh, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So you see this idea here of, of headship um, for the husband. And you see the idea of love and what love looks like because of the picture of Christ and the church. And that it's characterized by, by uh, nourishing and cherishing the one to be loved. And in fact, that, that word is used uh, by Paul when he says, when we came to you, we came to you as uh, a mother caring for her newborn. It's the same wording. That's the idea here. Nourishing and cherishing, caring for, protecting. That is the role of a, of a husband to his wife. But do we see that that's what it's supposed to look like according to the world? Either in the first century context that this is written or now today. Well, in the first century, the idea of, of headship and, and love was completely flipped on its head. And yes, I, I use that intentionally. The idea of headship was completely flipped on its head. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, in the context that this is written, you have the Roman Empire right? And the emperor was noted as the head of his body, the Roman citizens. So you have the head ruling over the body. That's the idea here. In, in, in uh, extra biblical literature, we have uh, segments that refer to how the citizens, the body, are to care for the head, the emperor. And it says things like, um, if, you know, if, if there's danger, it is the citizen's responsibility to throw themselves in the way of the arrows to protect the head of Rome. 
There's also segments that say that if the emperor needs something and it's in a fire, that it should be a citizen that reaches in to pull it out of the fire because we don't want to hurt the head of Rome. We don't want to hurt the one who's in charge. We need to protect that one. See, in the first century context, it is the head that is to be loved by the body. But in the biblical context, it's actually set right. It is the head that loves. It's a very important distinction. It is the head that loves the body. In fact, um, this idea is, is so important for us to understand that all of our, all of our understandings of the, the marital context and, and uh, the Christ and the church, are, they're connected in this way. For Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife, and there should be love that pours out of that. And what kind of love is this? Um, well, I'm so glad that you asked that. That just, that really helps me. Um, what kind of love is this? Well, it's a, uh, it's a love uh, that is self, self-sacrificing. We see, that in, um, we see that in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is an initiating love because we know from 1 John 4.19 that we love because God first loved us. Um, that's the picture of this type of love. In fact, um, I'm going to share just, just a little bit uh, from probably one of my favorite books on marriage. Um, it's called What Did You Expect? It's written by uh, Paul Tripp. Um, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful book. Um, when I am describing the love of God or, or this type of love, it is, um, I usually use the idea that it is seeking the highest good for the other person, the one to be loved, right? That, that's what this is. Paul Tripp says it so much better than I do. So I'm going to read what he says, how he characterizes this love. And, and this is at the end of a chapter, so you're getting a little bit of a, of a summary here, and, and he's kind of fleshed out uh, through Scripture all of these little aspects that he's going to put in there. But this is what he says. Uh, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. I'm going to say that one more time. Love is willing, willing, self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. A lot of times we can get hung up on those things, especially the last two. That there's this idea of reciprocation in a marital relationship that, uh, well, I, I, I want to love my wife, but she doesn't really respect me, so I can't. Or I want to submit to my husband, but he's not loving me well. We see in the biblical context that 
Reciprocation actually isn't required. Jesus chose to die for us before we submitted to him. That's really important, people. Oh, what our relationships would look like if we reflected on that. Also, did Jesus die for us because we deserved it? Because we deserved his sacrifice? Did God love us because we deserved it? Or does he love us because it's who he is? That distinction is really important. And it, and it needs to color every aspect of our relationship with our spouse. Um, I, I, I didn't share this uh, first service, and it's just because I forgot, but uh, there's this idea that uh, godly men and women are people of the second shift. What do I mean by that? I just mean that, like, when the world has this idea that after you work, you go home and you clock out and you, and you just relax, godly men and women are actually clocking in for the most important part of their day, the day when they build their family, when they uh, show Christ-like love in the family relationship, when they show what it looks like to submit to authority. That's the, that's the idea here. Um, first service last week, Joe said that I was going to solve all of the marital woes <laughs> that exist. And he didn't say that second service, but he said it first service last week. And uh, I, I have to tell you, I, 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 actually, I really believe that if we understood the divine model of Christ in the church and, and we uh, looked at that as being the picture for husbands and wives, and we lived accordingly, I actually think it really would solve the bulk of marital woes. I'm not saying it would lead to a perfect marriage. We live in a fallen world where sin is, is still prevalent. But it's not... Hear me out. I, I'm not telling you it's okay to sin. That's not what I'm saying. We all need to uh, pursue righteousness and live according to the word of God. But a big chunk of solving marital problems is the response to sin. It's how we respond to one another. And we can either respond in a gospel context as husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, and as wives submitting to their husbands. We can respond in that way, or we can respond with more sin, and more pride, and more problems. You guys get that? You understand that? When we have this picture of, uh, of submission, too, uh, so I, have, I have heard this, and please understand, uh, I'm, I'm blowing this up, so it for effect. I'm not trying to say this as a, as a harsh thing. But sometimes I hear this idea that like, well, I'm, I'm not going to submit to my husband. I, um, I make more money than him. I do more around the house. 
I raise the kids. I'm actually the spiritual leader of the house. I read my Bible more. I pray more. I know more about God. Why should I submit to my husband? And on the counter argument, sometimes I hear husbands say something like, why should I love my wife if you only knew her? <laughs> Whew, that's tough. Well, I'm going I'm to tell you, um, wives, you should submit to your husbands, and husbands, you should love your wives because you're told to. Because that's the model of the divine relationship between Christ and the church, and it is linked right here in Scripture. And remember that it's actually just an outflow of a spirit-filled life. In fact, a lot of times Christian counselors, when, they, um, when they're working through uh, marriage issues, the main problem is not something that's on the surface. The main problem is spiritual. It's a heart condition that that one or maybe both have that is causing problems. That's really important for us to know. Um, in the time that I have left, I, I, I want to move into how we actually can take these truths and apply them. Because we see that the love that's represented here is both uh, modeled and made possible in Christ. But how do we live out this type of love and submission in a marital context? Well, um, you need to reflect. You need to reflect upon the divine model between Christ and the church. In all of your interactions, reflect upon the divine model between Christ and the church. See, there will be times when your sinfulness and your flesh will want you to act in a way with your spouse that is not healthy. You may think it's healthy, but you have to ask yourself, is that what I see between Christ and the church? Do I see Christ acting in that way towards the church? Or do I see the church acting that way towards Christ? If you begin to ask those questions regularly, that will help you actually live in a way that is life-producing, that leads to human flourishing. Because that's the gospel at work in you and in your relationships. Amen? That's the picture that we see. And yes, we are called to live that way. But we need to understand that it's an outworking of the spirit-filled life. This isn't a command to love and a command to submit that is meant to be done in a uh, begrudging way. Because even if you are, are doing those things and, and they're not done with a heart posture, that is, that is good and, and pleasing to God, you're still, you're still sinning against your spouse. You're living in a way that is not spirit-filled. So we are to 
think about our own heart postures when, when we're interacting with one another. And when husbands and wives are interacting with each other. It's less about the finger pointing and saying, well, she's not submitting to me, or he's not loving me, and it's more about, am I submitting to my husband? Am I loving my wife? These are the questions that we need to ask and see if they measure up to the Christ church relationship. I want to close with this thought. The... Uh, This expansion of, of love-hungry media, it's not new. It, it's not new. The, the stories that have been written throughout time, the, the best stories, and I tell my kids this all the time, the best stories are love stories. They are. Why? Because every human heart desires that. Every human heart desires that. And it was put there by God. I'm sure of it. Because your heart and my heart can only be fulfilled by the love of God. And then it's the outworking of that love that needs to flow into all of our relationships, especially the marriage relationship. Husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands is not, um, it's not just something that has been put on uh, the relationship. That, that is the relationship. That, that's what it's supposed to look like. That is God's design. It's not something added to it. And it has implications for all of our relationships. So while I may not have solved all of the marital woes in the world. Steve actually is going to <laughs> next week. Um, there, he's going to be sharing like tips and keys and, and how this outflow kind of works. But here's the, here's the amazing thing, and this is why I love Scripture. It's all connected. The tips and the keys really point back to this truth of spirit-filled living within a marital context should look like Christ in the church. just to wet your whistle a little bit for next week. I, I want us to be a people that is characterized by this type of relationship. So will you pray with me for that? Heavenly Father, um, oh God, will you, will you give us a picture? A picture of, of your love for your people. And would you put within all of us the desire to see that in our marriages? That husbands would love their wives as Christ loved the church. And would you help us to see that the church the church lives in submission to Christ because of his authority, because of who he is. God, will you give us um, a healthy picture of what this looks like? Would you encourage all of us as we do this? Give us people in our lives that we can uh, lean on and ask questions from.
God, we're always asking you to form our hearts. And now we're asking you to form our hearts in our marriages as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.